filing cabinet to purchase, whether it should be black or brown, whether it should be two or three or four drawers. I think this took place during an official cabinet meeting. Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee served. In which church they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks blend. In the second, they just moved to a stronger blend. And the person said that in this latter church, members left the church over this. And then a final one I'll share. A disagreement arose over using the term potluck rather than pot blessing. The conviction is that because we believe in the sovereignty of God, there is no such thing as luck, which is actually true, but have fun trying to resolve that one. Um, and I'm sure for those of you who've been here long enough and are familiar with our church, I mean, we, you could probably think of lots of examples here that were argued about, which seem very trivial. Um, but through all these, you know, disagreements, these, these conflicts, we can see the dangerous effects that conflict can have within a church. And we're going to address that issue beginning a bit here and, and continuing uh, as we go on in later portions of Philippians. But to review a bit, as we've been going through the Philippians, we're focusing on the theme of joy uh, because that's a major theme of the book. And we're not talking about a fleeting joy that comes and goes depending on the circumstances, but a continual joy that's found through Jesus Christ. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, a verse we looked at last week, Paul wrote that he could be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And if you remember at the time that Paul penned the letter of Philippians, he was under house arrest, he was chained to a Roman guard or Roman guards 24-7. He was awaiting a trial which could result in his execution. And yet, as we've seen, just even going through this first chapter of Philippians, he still has joy. Dr. Arthur started off showing us how Paul could have joy while in chains. Last week, <clears throat> I talked about how joy could have, how Paul could have joy through his confidence and what he was confident in. And this morning, we're going to see how Paul teaches us to have joy through our conduct. And as we get into our text, you may notice that right at the start, there's a shift in focus. In the previous section of Philippians, Paul was mainly addressing his situation. The Philippians were concerned about Paul knowing that he was in jail or knowing that he was under house arrest awaiting trial. You know, they were wondering how he, how were his conditions? Was he being treated well? How was his demeanor? So after a brief, you know, formal introduction, um, Paul addresses his situation in the verses 12 to 26 of chapter 1. He's doing fine, he says. He's joyful in spite of the circumstances because Christ is being preached and God is getting the glory. He's not worried about his trial. He says, it doesn't matter whether I live or die as long as Christ is exalted. So that was Paul. And so now beginning in verse 27, he shifts his focus to Philippians and he wants to address some of the situations or some of the things that's happening with them and their church. He starts out verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And when you read that, that alone, you know, when you read it, it's a very powerful statement. I mean, we could just maybe stop here and I could just have you go home and meditate on what that means and how to apply it in your life. 
but let's spend some time unpacking this statement a little more and see what he really means through this text. When you see the word conduct yourself, other versions say live or let your manner of life be. The word used in the Greek comes from this word polis. And you might guess it's where we get the term political, politics. Through the the English translation, you would never notice this because it's just translated, you know, live or conduct yourself. But because of its uncommon usage in the Greek language, we need to understand that Paul specifically chose this word exactly for this reason. If you were here and you remember Dr. Arthur's introduction to Philippians, Uh, Even though Philippi was located approximately 800 miles from Rome, it was a colony of Rome. And as such, the citizens of Philippi were also considered Roman citizens. And this was something they were very proud of. It was noted that they dressed like the Romans, they spoke Latin like the Romans, they prospered because of their relationship with Rome. You could say, you know, maybe it was similar to the people who lived in Hong Kong back in the 90s before it was, you know, when it was still um, affiliated with the UK and before the handover to China in 1997. And because of their strong ties to Rome, many who weren't believers in Christ felt that the Christian faith was incompatible with citizenship in Philippi and accordingly with being a citizen in Rome. So Paul uses this politically charged words to teach the Philippians. In other Greek literature, the exact exact word Paul uses can mean things like have one's citizenship in or have your home in. So what Paul is telling the Philippians is is that when they are to conduct themselves or live, they are to live as citizens of God's kingdom. Though people were telling them, oh, let me turn the sentence. Sorry. Though people were telling them, their Christian faith was incompatible with being a citizen of Rome. He's letting them know that their citizenship in heaven supersedes that of Rome. If they feel any tension over what should be prioritized, there's no doubt. Paul says that the kingdom should come first. And to further emphasize this point, he says, not only live for the kingdom, but live for the gospel. If one were to properly live for the kingdom, they would be living for the gospel. When you translate verse 27 in its original language, it would say this, and note the particular word order and emphasis. Literally it says, only worthy of the gospel live as citizens. Only worthy of the gospel live as citizens. So for Paul, you know, the gospel took priority over other things. From previous sermons, remember the fact that he could rejoice while in chains was because the gospel was being spread to those he was chained to. And he said, ultimately, the whole palace guard. The fact that Paul could rejoice, though he had rivals and they tried to do him harm, was the fact that here, too, the gospel was being preached. And people were coming to Christ. He didn't care about his circumstances as long as the gospel was upheld. So Paul exhorts the Philippians, live as citizens for God's kingdom. Live for the gospel. And as we get into the following verses, we also find Paul had very specific things in mind when he told the Philippians to conduct themselves in this way. 
and it relates to their situation at hand. In the first half of our text, he shared with them how to handle opposition from the outside. And in the second half of our text, he talks about how to handle opposition from the inside. Regarding external forces, his main directive is stand firm. Stand firm, and he instructs them to do this in two areas. Stand firm in outreach. The second half of verse 27, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So you see here, Paul touches on this unity theme, right? He says, stand firm in one spirit, striving as one. But striving for what? As he just mentioned, so he he reiterates again, for the gospel. He wants them to be unified, but he knows that you can't be unified in in an environment at rest, in a static environment. You know, sure, people can say, you know, hi to each other, we can seem friendly to one another, but is that really unity? It's like when you think about it in an athletic team. You know, it's when they actually play the play the game that it comes out whether they truly play as one team. They can have interviews during the week and say all the right things, say, you know, there's harmony in the locker room, we all work together as one team, we're going to play together and support each other as one. But the proof is in their performance. It's what you see on game day, right? For those of you who've been on short-term mission trips, you know that during that period you're very focused and your objective, you see, and you know how that focus causes you to come together and work together as a team to accomplish that objective. After, you know, short-term trips, you often hear people come up, like Justin did, and hear testimonies of service of, you know, from people who've gone on these trips and share that there may, there may have been some disagreements or some discord. They really felt united and unified as a team, and they're working together for a common goal. Even when strong disagreements arose, they sought reconciliation because they knew it would harm their efforts to spread the gospel. And you know, whether you've participated in a short-term mission trip or not, you know, you realize that, you know, this shouldn't just happen on short-term trips. For us as a congregation, Paul is telling us to strive to develop this unity through the common mission we should all share in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. For only then, he says, will you have true unity. You know, if you're a believer and you come here regularly, I mean, you just look at those sitting around you, sitting next to you. You know, when you look at these people, do you see them as partners with people to spread the gospel? You can't say you're unified because we're friends, we say hi to each other, we don't argue that much, you know, we're in the same small group. It's that we are working as partners together and sharing this common mission to spread the gospel that brings us unity. Paul would say, you're not really standing firm in one spirit. You're really not striving together as one until you reach the point of serving together and seeing each other as partners together as one mission for the gospel. The second way Paul instructs the Philippians to stand firm, is to stand firm against their opponents. Against their opponents. He tells them in the first part of verse 28, not to be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. 
Once again, the Philippian believers were facing opposition from non-Christian Philippians who thought their faith in Jesus was incompatible against Roman values and goals. In the face of this persecution, they were tempted to compromise, to give in to their adversary, to give up the faith. So Paul encourages them to stand firm, to not give up their faith, to be loyal to Jesus. And he gives them two reasons why standing firm is preferable. First, by standing firm, it confirms their rival's punishment. The next part of verse 28, this will be a sign to them that they will be destroyed. The way it's translated, this phrase seems to imply that those who are inflicting the persecution will realize their eventual doom through the Philippians' courageous stand, which may be true, but in the original language, the phrase doesn't specifically mean this. What it means is that those who can perceive it and see the believers being persecuted through, their, through the Philippians' steadfastness, through their standing firm, their opponents will ultimately be judged. That no one can stand against the Lord and that the Lord will judge those who oppose his people. And this relates to the second reason that Paul encourages them to stand firm, which is that their standing firm also confirms their perseverance. Then the verse 28, this is a sign that you will be saved and that by God. Through them being able to hold fast against persecution, the Philippians can see this as a sign that they are truly saved because they can face and endure persecution without succumbing. Thus, their eternal salvation is secure, just as Paul's salvation is certain through his suffering. And that's why he links his sufferings with their suffering in verse 30. In his commentary on Philippians, D.A. Carson writes, relating to verse 27 to 28, The Philippians' changing character, the united stand in defense of the gospel, their ability to withstand with meekness and without fear the opposition that they endure, constitutes a sign. That sign speaks volumes both to the outside world and the Christian community. It is a sign of judgment against the world that is mounting the opposition. It is a sign of assurance that these believers really are the people of God and will be saved on the last day. So for the Philippians, joy would be experienced by standing firm. And then in the next section, Paul tells the Philippians there to conduct themselves as worthy of the gospel by standing united. If you read through the letter of Philippians, you may notice an interesting thing, and that is, Paul doesn't really address any doctrinal issues in this letter. And the reason is, probably there wasn't a lot of false teaching going around in the Philippian church that had to be dealt with. There wasn't erroneous doctrines that needed to be corrected. There wasn't maybe false teachers trying to infiltrate the church. The church overall was a pretty healthy church. But there was something going on in the church that had the power to tear the the church apart. And that something was the vision within the church. As I mentioned, we're going to get into this a lot more in subsequent sections of Philippians. But there's at least one instance of discord Paul is addressing, which I'll share with you, and that's found in Philippians 4, verses 2 to 3. 
Paul writes, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. We don't know what the disagreement was about. Paul doesn't tell us. But we know it was serious enough for Paul to bring it to the attention of the whole church and ask for their assistance in bringing about reconciliation. And like we saw you know, at the beginning of this message, disunity and discord can be very dangerous to churches, even for healthy ones. William Barclay had a very good insight into this. He wrote this. He said, There is a sense in which this is the danger of every healthy church. You see, it is when people are really in earnest, really, when their beliefs really matter to them, when they are eager to carry out their own plans and their own schemes, that they are most apt to get up against each other. The greater their enthusiasm, the greater the danger they may collide. So you see, even though a church needs this common vision, a common goal, which is to spread the gospel, to experience true unity, the Parkley's point, it doesn't ensure unity if people are so earnest and eager to carry out their own plans to accomplish this mission or goal. And the plans are competing. And Paul knows how dangerous and disunity, this disunity can be, which, he, which is why he spends so much time focusing it on this letter. In our text, he speaks of two things to help his readers stand united. The first is found in verses 1 and 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion that make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Notice this oneness that I referred to on your outline that Paul says there to have in verse 2. Look at the phrases he uses. Think the same thing. Have the same love. Be one in spirit or be united in soul, which is the spirit. This would be characteristics to show they were unified. And why should they be motivated to do this? Paul answers the question in verse 1. Because of the benefits they receive through their relationship with Christ and the affection they feel towards other believers, namely Paul. Verse 1 lists, verse one lists several questions which I'm sure you can see are highly rhetorical. In the Greek, the word used for if can also be translated since which might be a better word to use. Since you have encouragement from being united with Christ, since you have comfort from his love, since you have fellowship with the Spirit, recognize these things that are bringing you together as one, as fellow believers in Christ. And as such, let it motivate you to bring you to further unity, to this further oneness that he writes about in verse 2. And the second thing he teaches in the Philipp- to the Philippians in regards to unity is to take on an attitude of humility. Take on an attitude of humility. And notice the instructions he gives here in verses 3 to 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from empty conceit. Do consider others better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests. Do look out for the interests of others. I think the you know, the phrases, the verses are, are quite clear. So I don't think a lot of explanation is necessary. The hard part is putting it into practice. When Paul speaks of thinking the same thing, being united in love, 
in verse 2 follows that, implying that we need to have some rigid norms that we all need to conform to. In the Greek, in verse 2, he uses the word, think the same thing, think one thing. And then he sandwiches it between these two phrases about having the same love, being of one spirit. In other words, what he's saying in verse 2 is, having the same mind comes about through having a mutual affection or love for one another. Thinking about one thing comes from being united in spirit. So in the same sense, in verse 4, being humble and considering others better than yourself doesn't mean that you know you have to be a walking doormat and let everyone step all over you. What it does mean is that sometimes we will have differences, but we show our love for one another by our willingness to put the other person first. We can speak truth, we can act on truth, but it has to be done in love. And it also means that we are willing to admit our error and ask for forgiveness when we are wrong. And I think when we strive together to stand in unity for the gospel, you know, conflict over trivial things such as filing cabinets and what kind of coffee to serve, you know, it won't happen. It will be put to rest as we recognize our oneness in Christ and seek to take this posture of humility that Paul asks of us in verse 4. So as I conclude, let me emphasize that true joy is experienced when we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And what that means is that when we are standing firm, knowing that the gospel is being spread, when we stand firm knowing that our enemies are defeated and that our salvation is secure, when we stand united as a body of Christ, feeling the oneness we have in Christ and love each other in humility, joy will just naturally occur. We'll experience joy as we show that our satisfaction and happiness are found in Christ and his promises and not dependent on our circumstances. So conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Stand firm, stand united, experience true joy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you just for this word from Philippians. I thank you for the challenge that Paul gives to us to see ourselves as standing firm, to see ourselves as a body here is standing united. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we, as an English congregation of CBCGB, as well as the whole church, that we may look at one another as not just friends or acquaintances, but as partners with us spread the gospel. And may we show it through our actions. And Father, in doing so, may you also bring about true unity which, in which we will experience a mutual love and affection for one another in which we will be willing to put our own selfish motives and pride aside to think of others better than ourselves. And probably sings in Jesus' name. Amen.